Hello, welcome back to the Masonic Roundtable, a weekly program where Masons from around the world get together to talk about Masonic news and opinions in a friendly and social manner. As a reminder, the thoughts and opinions expressed here are solely the opinions of the participants and do not represent any Grand Lodge statements or positions. Make sure you keep your conversations open for the public and on the level. Uh, as usual, to interact with us, uh, we love chatting with you live. This one's a good one because we'll be taking your questions live on Facebook and on YouTube. So please make sure to hop in, say hi, and certainly ask some questions about tonight's topic. You know me, my name is John Ruark. I'm a past master of the Patriot Lodge, number 1957 in Fairfax, Virginia. And next up for his introduction, Joe Martinez. Hello and good evening, Joe. How are you tonight? Hey, all you cool cats and kittens. This is uh, Joe Martinez. We just started watching the um, the exo- uh, Joe Exotic uh, miniseries, so um, that's on my brain now. But uh, yeah, Joe Martinez, uh, current master of Manassa Lodge. Number 182, Manassas, Virginia, member of uh, 90 Other Things, and uh, Super Jazz for tonight. Awesome, awesome. Next up, Jason Richards. How are you tonight? I'm good. How are you, John? Great. Thanks for asking. No problem. I'm glad that you're doing well. Uh, I'm Jason Richards. I'm a past master of Acacia Lodge number 16 in Clifton, Virginia, and a member of lodges in D.C. and Ohio. Excellent. And last but not least for tonight, our very esteemed and special guest, that would be the one, the only brother Mark Tabert, who is the director of collections at the George Washington National Masonic Memorial. So hello and good evening and thanks for coming on. Yep. Yep. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Um, uh, Let me tell you a little bit more about myself. Please. So I'm a past master of Mystic Valley Lodge in Arlington, Massachusetts. I'm a member of Malta Lodge 318, which is my mother lodge in Burlington, Iowa. I'm a past master of Lodge and I Muses 1776 in D.C., and I'm also a member of Quattro Coronati Lodge in London, as well as the usual stuff in a 33rd degree in the northern Masonic jurisdiction. Um, I've been a Mason for 22 years. Nice. So that's like almost as old as our average listener. So. <laughs> That's, that's, that's super awesome. So it's, it's great to have you on here. And before we get into tonight's topic, um, definitely want to give a shout out and thanks all, thank all the patrons who've been supporting the show. You guys are awesome and help us keep uh, this hosting, hosting costs way, way down so we can keep this up uh, for many generations to come, maybe 22 years later, right? When, when, um, 2040 brother, brother Tabber comes back on in, yeah. <laughs> His twenty, his forty forty fourth year. Then we'll uh, we'll celebrate yeah, that. Yeah. So awesome. Tonight's topic is a good one. It's something we've been waiting for for a long time. Which is, I don't know. I mean, is everyone sitting down? Big revelation. I am. Okay. In case you haven't noticed, George Washington was a Freemason. Yeah. Shut okay. up. Good night, everybody. Okay. We've no way. Cats out of the bag. Yeah. yeah. And not just you any speak your truth. You speak your truth. <laughs> Fake news. What we're going to do is we're going to talk about the the life and more more importantly the Masonic life of Brother George Washington and you know let's dispel some of these myths. Let's talk about what research that Brother Tabard has found and really just go anywhere the conversation goes. So this is your first reminder if you're watching live, please jump in the chat. I know while I'll be talking, Jason and Joe are going to help moderate that and get those questions in here. 
and we will certainly be willing to um, talk about any questions you have about what, like, let's get to the ground truth. We have the expert here on anything you want to know about George Washington's Masonic career. So while we do that, I definitely want you, Mark, to talk about your research, um, both. And my first question for you is, this isn't your first George Washington book, right? So, like, did you, like, find some, like, parchment through the National Treasure movies <laughs> that you didn't you didn't find before and dug up underneath, like, the, the lost keys of Atlantis? Whatever it is, what what's new in this book, and what was your focus in this brand new book that you wrote? Well, so, thank you for having me. Um, I think it's also good to say my disclaimer, too, which is I, I'm only representing myself. I don't represent any Masonic organization, and I really don't necessarily represent the George Washington Masonic Memorial Association either. Um, so it's just me as an author speaking and a historian. So I, I did write about six or seven years ago, a little short, small book on George Washington's rules for life and civility, which was just taken the famous rules that Washington had, had written as a boy and put them into an order for different um, lodge situations directed towards Freemasons. And in the back of that was a chronology of all the Masonic events in Washington's life. So that's a $10 book that I produced really quickly that Steve McCall at McCoy's wanted. And it's a nice book and it's just a good introduction with some basic resources in it. And that was something that I had that I could do easily. And it just occurred to me that you could take those rules of civility and divide them up for rules before lodge, during lodge, after lodge. And, mm -hmm. um, so that was just a small book that I did in a, in a couple months. So in the meantime, I'd been working on this large, larger project that I started in 2014 was to really determine the whole history and everything there is to know about George Washington as Freemason. One of the things that, and it's in my book, I'll show you the copy here. We might as well get the plug out of the way. Here's the copy. I'll show you more about this as we go through it. But um, the what's book it called? Has, it's called A Deserving Brother, George Washington Freemasonry. It's published by the University of Virginia Press, um, which you can buy it through the University of Virginia Press, but you can also buy it through the Memorial Association, uh, which, of course, supports the Memorial Association more than it supports the University of Virginia Press. And McCoy's in Richmond is doing the distribution. So if you go through McCoy's, um, they're just doing a wonderful job because they just have the shipping facilities and everything else to sell it through that. Um, so that's the title of the book. The title comes from a letter that Washington himself wrote. Uh, he uses this phrase a couple times, but uh, most famously to King David Lodge in Rhode Island, he goes up to Rhode Island in 1791 because Rhode Island joined the, joined the Union as the 13th state, and he's in Newport, Rhode Island, um, and he's given a letter by the King David's Lodge, which is primarily a Jewish lodge in Newport. His reply was, I'm always happy to support the lodge, Freemasonry, and I hope to be considered a worthy, a deserving brother, right? Which is an ironic thing, and it's important because right. – for Washington to hope that he's considered to be worthy of being called a Freemason is um, is just shows his modesty and his and his understanding of the world the in a lot of different yep. ways. Mm -hmm. yep. um, so the book is really I've always called this book the evidence book, and the real story behind that is that uh, there's a presumption when I started working at the Memorial Association in 
2006 that everything that was on Freemasonry was known. And there are several books written by people like William Mosley Brown, who was past Grandmaster of Virginia, and others who we presume had gathered up everything there was to know. When in fact, once I started putting the pieces together, there was a lot of inconsistencies and a lot of confusion. And um, I'm not so much of a historian or a writer as I am a curator. And I'm more focused on databases and spreadsheets than I am on sentences and paragraphs. So it really bothered me that there wasn't a straight listing of chronology that articulated every single known incident. So that's what I started. The book starts with nice. a, with a, with an Microsoft Access database, just trying to plug in a chronology. Where was he in? Where was he then? What did he do? You know, why was he writing this letter? When did he? Why couldn't he go to this lodge? Whatever it was, so we could actually get a consistency. And believe it or not, for an institution that had been around eighty years, nobody at the Memorial Association had ever done that, and no Freemason. The closest there really was was Paul Bessel, who was uh, a past senior grand warden in the Grand Lodge of D.C. and is, has a very famous website. His his listing, and he was a part-time uh, librarian at the Memorial Association before I got there. So he was the one who got closest to that straight black and white chronology of this is just the facts. So starting with Paul Bessel's and these other resources, I slowly put together a giant database of everything, and then a lot of the letters and stuff are online through um, not, through the Library of Congress. So um, it was just combining a lot of different sources, trying to get it all together in one place, yeah, and that's so, that's the that's the purpose of the book is to yeah, put it all together in one place. And that's interesting. That's one place I was going to start because um, I know that you can find on like Gutenberg and a couple other places like the public domain version of Washington's Masonic correspondences. And that's, right. that's, to me, that's where I would start if I were trying to look at the, you know, the at least the most public known assemblage of Masonic correspondence uh, for, for George Washington. Yeah. But I, I can assume it's not complete, right? No, so it's, and it, it, it's the foundation of my book, absolutely. And Great. it's an extraordinarily mm -hmm. important book. The other book is a, is a Sidney Hayden book, which was which is written in the 1860s. Um, but um, that book that, uh, Saxe's book, the Masonic um, Masonic Correspondence, he doesn't articulate the exact locations of every letter. He includes letters that are not at the Library of Congress. And then, of course, he didn't find every single letter. He only was interested in letters that were to and from Masonic organizations and not to individuals. And there were individuals oh. who wrote George Washington asking him for charity, asking for jobs, asking him to solve Masonic disputes. Um, miscellaneous crud that just came his way because they thought he was a, you know, so, so he didn't do everything in Saxe admits in his book that he did publish everything, but he did that, you know, he wrote that book in 1915. So, you know, finding aids and such was a little more primitive back didn't then. Ha the Google back then was, was pretty rough. Right. Bad. Hey, was, Mark. Yeah. <laughs> yes, go ahead. <clears throat> Quick question for you then. So is your book then primarily like a collection of those primary source materials. Okay. Yes. So it's kind yeah. of like so, a compendium. Yes. Right. So it's, it's, it really is. Um, the definitive. There's compendium. an introduction. So uh, there's an introduction that explains, you know, how I wrote the book and why 
there's a, and then there's an introduction written by Dr. Ed, Edward Lingle, who was the editor of the Washington Papers for 20 years. And he writes a narrative that is just puts it into context so people have a narrative. But what I wrote was just, here is, here is when Washington got his entered apprentice. This is what's going on. This is the degree that he received. This is how we know what degree it was. These are the people who were at his degree. Then he got his fellow craft. This was why he got his fellow craft. And then he got, you know, and then I write 10,000 words. Why wasn't he at Lodge between 1756 and 1778? And I go through his diaries very, very carefully, explain what he was doing in those 20 years. And then he's, here are the exchanges of letters, very specifically. Um, during the War for Independence, when he comes home, you know, uh, it's very, very specific, which is, we know that Washington marched in this funeral for William Ramsey because it's in his diary. Who was William Ramsey? What was he doing? What was going on? How do I know William Ramsey was a Freemason? You know, these sort of things. So it's it's very much, you know, a detective. It's a, it's more like police reports. Who, what, when, where, how. Right. And I wrote them as separate entries. I wrote thick ones and thin ones, and then I put them together in a book. So it really is the evidence book. And then at the end of the book is an articulation of how this mythology grew up after Washington's death, the history, what we'd call the historiography, various people writing books that lead to this mythology, including, you know, the images of Washington presiding at a lodge meeting that you see at every Hattie Burnett painting in every lodge hall, even though Washington never presided at a lodge meeting. Um, the, the very odd sort of stuff that grows up and why. And there are some very strong and, and important historical reasons and economic and social factors why Freemasonry develop this kind of mythology it's not a horrible thing but it's just it's a confusing thing and and we're stuck with it you know and well joe that that's your that's your question right yeah well yeah kind of it's uh no but i think i think brother mark kind of hit it on the head though it's important to have that legend you know especially as an american freemason you know that's definitely one of our um one of our go-to people when we walk into a lodge room and we see a portrait of George Washington, you know, so, you know, I totally understand the need for that, but um, we did have a bunch of questions um, showing up already on, on Facebook and on YouTube. The first one was, um, and I think everybody wants to know this. Is it true that George Washington was irregularly made a Mason? Was he too young to have been initiated? What's the, what's the, the so the, on that? the short answer, the short answer is it doesn't matter because the lodge received a charter from the Grand Lodge of Scotland. And once you receive a charter, then all irregularities disappear. It doesn't matter. You, right. You've been, you've been so, healed. That's right. Exactly. And that's, that's not ha ha funny. That's the way that the Masonic world works. Right. right. Exactly. So it's the same thing with Prince Hall and, and his brothers in Boston. It doesn't matter at all how Prince Hall received his degrees. Once the Grand Lodge of England gave those brothers a charter that's it there's no more discussion it because there's no power that's higher than a grand lodge there's it's in fact it's metaphysically impossible to have a, a power higher than the grand lodge so the answer is first of all as a historian anything that happens in freemasonry in the united states really before 1820 it's wild wild west and to suggest to to try to impose the way things were organized oh, after absolutely. 1860 right. on anything before 1820 is, is, um, yeah. Colonial masonry was a mess. Exactly. It was yeah, a hot mess. Right. And that's, yeah. And, and, and that's about- the other book. I So, so yes, he was under the age of 21, but who cares? 
and no, no, they didn't have a charter when it was initiated, but who cares? It's not important at all. And they, they did get a charter later on and, and they, the guy went to Scotland. He plunked down 10, 10 pounds. They gave him a charter. The charter is back in, in Fredericksburg. It's been sitting there ever since. Uh, and the Grand Lodge. And But what's more important, the lodge at Fredericksburg is now the fourth lodge in the Grand Lodge of Virginia. So the Grand Lodge of Virginia, when it was organized, it didn't have a problem with, with the lodge at Fredericksburg. Uh, yeah. So it's healed. It, it's a, it's it's a curious thing to talk about, but uh, right, you know, it's <laughs> well, it just gets old after a while, right? It's it's there, uh, go ahead. So yeah, no, I was just going to say that. So the answer has been settled. So social media. So bars, yes, he was under twenty one. Yes, he did that. Yes, they didn't have a charter, but most importantly, the trump of all that is the Grand Lodge of Scotland gave him a charter and its discussion. All right, that's it. Next Thus question. ends the banality of Joe. <laughs> yes. Well, there, it's not Joe. It's uh, it's Facebook. So yeah. uh, next question, and I find this one rather interesting. Was there any correspondence that you read or uh, that's part of the book where Brother Washington ran into brothers that were redcoats during the war that are documented? No, no. So so no. one of the things that's important to understand about this, about this, Washington is not the protagonist of the story. Freemastry is. After Washington, so Washington attends three lodges, his entered apprentice, fellow craft master mason, and then he attends a lodge, the next lodge meeting after that, after he's raised a master mason. He, um, and after that, he doesn't, he's not proactive towards Freemasonry for the rest of life. For the rest of life, Freemasonry comes towards him. He doesn't go towards Freemasonry. He's invited, mm -hmm. he attends. He, he's, his best friend's being raised, he attends. During the war for independence, he goes to a, he goes to a regimental lodge. He comes home from the war. He's invited by the brothers of Alexandria. He attends, right? But he's not he's not going to lodges. Why? Because he's got other things to do. He's got a lot of other things to do. So he is not the protagonist in the story. Freemasonry comes to him, and it's how he responds. So he's has a couple occasions during his career, like when he comes back from the war and he's retired and the, and the brothers in Alexandria ask him to show up, he could have said, oh, something I did a long time ago, I'm too busy. No, he writes a letter to the brother right. saying, I am happy to support this. I'm just really, really busy because I've been away for eight years. But when the time shows that comes is right, I'll be happy to do whatever I can and support the lodge in Alexandria. So he had many top opportunities to just blow it off and to say that was something I did as a kid. But he was actually very, very happy to be a patron of the fraternity for the rest of his life. And you would say that that says a lot more about the whole the title of your book, right? Being a deserving brother that right. uh the lack of attendance or his, you know, participation does not reflect his respect for the fraternity and in, you know, the living, the values that were, are instilled in, in the fraternity. So uh, that's right. Well, but let's not beat around the bush. I mean, we talked about this in the green room. You can have, uh, you know, and I won't name names, but you can have a brother that goes to lodge every once a month for 25 years. It doesn't mean yeah. he's a just and upright person. It 22 just means years. He's really really good at attendance. I'm not talking about Mark. Um, no. no, but you have those brothers that, you know, will give you a, a dirty look if you miss right. a meeting uh, or don't show up, but yet they go right. and they go for decades and they contribute nothing. Right. 
to right, right. either their lodge or the world at large, right? So, and and I think, and I'm, I'm glad you brought that up, Mark, because I think that's a really important aspect of Freemasonry is just because you show up and you go to the meetings and you listen to the minutes being read, it doesn't make you a good Mason. There's all the other stuff and the lessons that are, uh, you know, that are inculcated within you that are supposed to teach you to be a better Mason, not the right. attendance scenario. So, right, right. Fantastic right. point. So, so, go ahead. No, no, no. I was, I'll let so, you finish your uh, So, just, just to put the, put the fine point on that, which is, you know, let's, we could just use the crafts, a, a craftsman analogy on that. So, hey, I'm going to go down, I'm going to be a stonemason. I'm going to go down to the job site, sit on my ass all day, chew tobacco and spit in a can and watch other guys work. Uh, does that make me a stonemason? It makes you a guy who's watching other stonemasons work. It doesn't. Makes you doesn't a supervisor. That, that, makes, that right, sounds like. Right. That sounds like a man who sat on 66 traffic at any point in the last 10 years. <laughs> right, so. Right. Management. So, so it, it really, and, but the, the side of this is, and this is again, a consequence of the 20th century, which is once you have the full corporation and the conglomerate that is Freemasonry by 1950, you know, York, right, Scottish, right, shrine, Eastern star, blah, 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 blah. And you guys, you have, you have men who have 15 page Masonic resumes and you have, it's expected for a grand master to be in, involved with every organization. What do you mean? He's, he's not an Eastern star. I don't know if he's qualified to be a grand master or, or, uh, you know, he, he, he did whatever. Then it becomes literally this resume building and things shift away from who you are to what you've been doing. And then you just have it becomes a very corporate thing, or you can even use a military analogy, which is, well, you know, in order to become a battalion commander, I have to do my supply thing, I have to do my artillery thing, I have to do my logistics things, I have to do my S two stuff, and then once I have all my ticket punch, then I can get promoted to lieutenant colonel. It's the same thing. It doesn't matter how well you did any of those jobs. So it's a, it's a product of the 20th century corporatization of Freemasonry. Um, okay. Whereas uh, an example in the book, I'm trying to remember, I think his name is Peter Yates. Peter Yates, who was a very, very famous member of a very famous family around um, upstate New York, which is Giles Fonda Yates and Van Rensselaer's. He was, he was master of his lodge when he was like 25 years old and he remained master of his lodge for 35 years. So that's a Ooh. totally different kind of universe, right? Because he was a patron of, of his lodge and he came from a, a wealthy family and that's part of what he would do. So it, it's a completely different point of view. It's, it's so anyway, I mean, Washington, I don't right, going and, and that. He, Washington could have paid his way through the fraternity as well. Yeah. I mean, he, he came from money. So, yeah. So that, well, you that, know, that's, that just, that just segues to this point, which is, you know, this, we might as well get this story too. Washington was never the Grand Master of Virginia, nor was he ever asked to be Grand Master. He was in consideration, and his name was suggested that he could be Grand Master. But when they were organizing the Grand Lodge of Virginia, they they went through a couple of different names. There's never there's no evidence that they ever wrote to Washington asking him to be a Grand Master, and there's no evidence that he ever wrote back saying, "Oh, I'm too busy, and I was never a Grand Warden." If Washington had wanted to be the first Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of Virginia, the brothers would have figured out a way to make that happen. Right? So it's the same thing. Yep. Absolutely. You know. 
So, so. speaking of, um, there's uh, three different people ask the same question basically in different ways. So I'll just give you the easy version. But um, the question is, did Washington have a family history of Masonic membership? And if so or not, was it something that people of his means just did at the time? Did they join the craft um, if they were of a social, certain social status or what have you? Um, well, so f when Washington joined, Fredericksburg was a frontier town, and the lodge, as far as our minutes goes, was only f a few months old, the best we know. Um, Washington's um, brother-in-law, his, his sister's husband, was a member of the lodge, and he had other cousins or other in-laws who were members of the lodge, and that's part of the reason why he joined. But nobody... Uh, but his his half brothers and his father, there's no evidence that they would have been Freemasons. Um, in 1752, and I don't have, I I had to do some shifting and arounds here, so I don't have all my books handy. But I, I did publish, um, I self-published, but it's also going to be republished by McCoy's The Almanac of American Freemasonry. Um, and in 1752, when Washington became a Freemason, there were 15 lodges in the whole North America, right? Mm -hmm. So you, you we're talking about maybe, what, 300 or 400 Freemasons in all right. of the North American continent. Mm -hmm. So to have any kind of familiar connection at all, there is an idea that maybe Lawrence became a Freemason when he was living in England, when he went mm -hmm. to school in England. But he went to school in North England. He went at like Northumberland um, near the Scottish border, and there weren't any lodges in that area. So again you know, it's like you have to, just because you're in England doesn't mean that there's a lodge nearby, right? You have to be near a lodge in order to join a lodge and you have to hear of it. And that's part of what my book is about is there, how did Washington learn about Freemasonry? Why would he know about it? And what, what kind of exposure would he have? So there's no evidence that anybody in his family were Freemason other than his in-laws. He had, he had other, mm -hmm. he had family in and around Fredericksburg that he's, that his sister married into. Yeah. Nice. And another question, I think that's a doozy, um, and I, I'm going to love to hear your answer on it with basically being a traitor to the state. And I think um, they're referring so, to things like, yeah, like, you know, in our obligations, you know, and, uh, you know, our charges, depending on where you became oh, a Mason, right. they tell you things like being a quiet and peaceful citizen, you know, respectful of the right. state, yada, yada, yada. Yeah, so I, I would, um, it's in here. In my book, page 43, so Anderson's Constitution's charge, and there's a similar charge in, in Dermont's uh, for the ancients. I'll read it. Uh, Mason is a peaceful subject to civil powers wherever he resides or works and is never concerned with plots or conspiracies against the peace and welfare of the nation. If a brother should be a rebel against the state, he, he is not to be countenanced in his rebellion. However, he may be pitied as an unhappy man, and if convicted of no other crime, uh, though the loyal brotherhood must and ought to disown his rebellion, they cannot expel him from the lodge, and his relationship to it remains indefensible. That is to say that if you rebel against the state, you're not going to be expelled from Freemasonry. You'll just be pitied as a as a as a mess and a and a sad, sad human being. But that doesn't disqualify you from being a Freemason or kick you out, right? So there's the reconcilement is so Freemasonry. It doesn't have that level of loyalty. There are grand masters, but again, this is a the grand master construct is something that's more of a nineteenth and twentieth century thing. Um, 
lodges were families and they were very, very tight things that were units that happened to get a charter because they felt they needed to or because they wanted to be able to communicate with other lodges and figure out a way when immigrants and migrants came through town that you could actually recognize them. But this idea that there was some sort of, uh, there was a, it was an international cosmopolitan organization, but it wasn't a corporation where there was a top and then there was middle management and then there was local franchises. Like you work at McDonald's and you go, you know, it's not that. It's not that at all. And people well, try to argue like the, that. the provincial Grand Lodge system at the time could yeah. have been could so, have been like that. But yeah, I mean, again, later, it, it was yeah. still it was still very loose. So it was yeah. So pre George Washington. So there, this this idea that um, you know Freemasonry, I, I think I think men did whatever they wanted to do, and I don't think that there was a huge legal structure. You know, the reason why you get more thicker and thicker grand constitutions is because uh, people figure out more and more bad ways to do things. Right. right? <laughs> and to weasel their way around things. And so they make more regulations. If they just made it short and sweet that said, you know, if you do X, you're out. <laughs> That's it. So um, it is curious. But as I write in my book in 1783, at the end of the war, you could have American Freemasons who are proud that Washington was a, a Freemason, but at the same time, the George III's brother, son, Frederick, was becoming Grand Master of the Grand Lodge of England. But, of course, there was also the Grand Lodge of Ireland and Scotland and the ancients. So who is your loyalty to? You know, so there's, well, already, you, you, there's always divisions within the Grand Lodges. So, you know. Well, yeah, your answer was much more erudite than mine. My answer was always, <laughs> well, once we became sovereign and once we became a United States, we really didn't give a crap what England thought. So, um, right. Well, the, the question of separation from the Grand Lodges, uh, the British Grand Lodges, was an interesting question because that wasn't really something that was – I mean, the Grand Lodge of Virginia figured that out early but but even after they declared their independence they didn't meet for three or four years so and even the grand lodge of massachusetts they were independent too the um the ancient grand lodge but they they had very it wasn't really wasn't until the 1780s when the grand lodge of pennsylvania decided to really become independent that set all the other grand lodges in motion or the other states in motion to set up their own independent grand lodges uh and we can talk about this further but you know this idea of creating a general grand master of the United States, which was bandied about during the American Revolution, and it's in my book, and it blew my mind when I read it. Their idea was that they would create a general grand master, and they would pull the the deputy grand masters or the, or the provincial grand masters who were ancients right. and recognized because mm -hmm. of Pennsylvania were, were ancients, right. and these district dep these provincial grand masters in around the several colonies or independent states during the 1780s, 1770s during the war, would then come up with, with a list of names such as maybe George Washington to to decide who could be the general grand master, and they would send that list to England for England's approval. Wow. Right? It wasn't like Ooh. we're going to get together and we're going to pick the biggest, bestest grandmaster in the hell with Europe. It was like, no, we're going to pick somebody and then ask for England to approve whoever we nominate to be general grandmaster. So, so they were still still totally like dependent on some sort of Grand Lodge of ancient Grand Lodge of England um, right. uh, approval to be to mm -hmm. have a general so 
Now, one thing I wanted to one thing I wanted to ask you because I saw you get excited about this, you know, this new fact that you found, and that was the the basic question of what was the the coolest thing or the most interesting thing that you did find in your research as you were putting this book together. What was something like? Oh, that's really neat, or or some new revelation, or something that you got really excited about. Well, I think that I think that was part of it, which is the 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 minutes of American Union Lodge. Uh, which was a regimental lodge that's now uh, American Union Lodge Number no. One in Marietta, Ohio. Those minute books were transcribed in the 1850s, but nobody had really looked. They were they're published in the Grand Lodge of Connecticut's proceedings, which are online. You can read them, um, but it doesn't. Nobody's really published that. Fo- it again goes goes back to the thoroughness of it, which is. So other books on George Washington, like Sachse's book, or like Hayden's book, or like. Um, they all said, well, you know, Washington was proposed for General Grandmaster, and they talk about that. But nobody shows the full presentation or the chronology of Good. what that meant. So mm-hmm. if you actually read the minute books from uh, American Union Lodge, which I've actually went out to Marietta and saw them, and there's one that's in the Grand Lodge in New York too. But So I've read – I've seen most of the original documents for, for everything. Um uh, it says, again, we like this idea of having a general grandmaster. We think it's a good idea. We're going to pass this idea over to the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania, and this is the way they're going to set it up. Let's ta- find all the other ancients who are in North America, see who they like for to be their general grandmaster. And when we come to a consensus, and maybe it's George Washington, we'll send that name over to England and see if they approve. And if they approve, then we'll ask the guy, we'll elect him, we'll install him, and put put him on a throne, and then he'll have the power to do two things, and only two things: to charter lodges into new territories until such time as those territories have enough constituent lodges to form a grand lodge, and then from time to time, the general grand master can call a convention to get things together, and that's it. So, um, I think that was. I'm sure there's other things, but that's just in my mind right now is the idea that they actually thought this through and it was an act of independence, but it was an act of total subordination to the ancient Grand Lodge of England. And all this was proposed during in a soldier's lodge filled with men who were, in, who were open, violent um, disobedience against the British crown and their commander in chief is sitting in the room at the same time. Right, wow. so they're all still showing subordinates to a British authority for their for their Masonic allegiance oh, in the midst of all being open and open, seditious, and would have been hung as traitors, um, potentially hung as traitors by the British Crown. Just to prove right. my charter first, got it. Right, exactly. Wow. So I think that's the most amazing thing because that is cool. That is because, really cool. Because part of what was going on here, and again, it's 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 part of the. It's part of the fantasy, and I don't mean that in a negative way, but it's more of just the boosterism, the self-promotion propaganda, which was everything that you've read about George Washington Freemason as a Freemason, if you are a Freemason, is you get this airy-fairy wonderland story where, and you don't actually get down to the facts. And for some reason, people 80 years, 100 years ago decided that those facts were too complicated. They wanted to keep it simple. And, and and instead of trusting people to hear the whole story, and the whole story is not, it's not, um, it's not um, bad. It's not no. um, divisive. It's not anything other than more complicated than we actually kind of knew, right? Because guess what? People living before us, 
had complicated lives too. <laughs> you know? Yeah. <laughs> you know, they had to make hard decisions just like we do, you know? So brother Mark, two more questions talking about the here and now, as opposed to the 18th century. Uh, they're both related. Number one, uh, do you have any, a couple of people ask this, do you know of any date when they're planning to reopen the GW Masonic Memorial? Yes, we're, we're trying to desperately get tour guides and we want to open it uh, as soon as possible. We're aiming the 1st of April. We're looking for tour guides. Um, certainly if there are young Masons or energetic Freemasons, please contact us if you have, if you can spare a couple days because we're going to only open it as we have tour guides. So Jason, if you, if you're looking for something to do, you know, we're probably going to try and open up on weekends and, um, and then fill it up as we have tour guides. But, you know, there's a labor shortage and there's other, other issues. I hereby like nominate that, Jason Richards. I second yeah, that. So that would be wonderful. You know, uh, I don't want to get the, the, divorced. I feel like <laughs> I would need to get divorced to spend any more yeah. time away from my wife uh, and son. <laughs> well, and then, uh, how good a Freemason do you want to be? So, oh, so we're hey, anxious. Oh. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Nice. Oh, that's all that so, the other half of yeah. the question is, um, what's the best way to support either you or the memorial by getting this book? Because it's available on Amazon. We talked about McCoy's. What's the best way right. to, to so, purchase? So McCoy is just being a great Freemasons, and they're helping because they're doing the distribution. So they are – if you buy the book through McCoy's, McCoy is just doing the shipping and handling. They're not really making any money off of the book. Uh, but you could go to the website and buy other things from them because they're great guys down there. And, and they're trying to rebuild their business, of course, after the COVID universe. So any kind of support you can give McCoy's, that's a good thing. But 100% of the profits from from buying it from McCoy's goes to the Memorial Association. If you buy it through Amazon or the University of Virginia Press, uh, that, that money really goes to the University of Virginia Press. So the way, the way that this worked out is that um, – the University of Virginia Press gets to work to sell the book to the profane world, um, to the non-Masonic world. So that's why it's on Amazon. That's why they'll promote it to libraries and colleges and university. And the Moore Association, we promote our book into the fraternity. That's our side of the street. And the University of Virginia Press should stay away from that, right? Perfect. So Perfect. So and and I have autographed copies at McCoy's. If you want an autographed copy, you can get it through McCoy's. I think you just have to send an email. But since I only live a couple hours from there, I'll drive down there and autograph books. I think that's the easiest. Right? How about course, at the memorial? The memorial. Yeah. How about we just if meet you come at the, the memorial, memorial and you can sign our books? Yeah, I was going to say that if you come to the memorial and I'm available, I will be happy to sign your book. Yeah. Absolutely. We'll, we'll, no we'll try to. To meet up when Jason's doing the, the tour guide. So we'll get the, the whole, tour. The whole yeah. package. <laughs> yeah. So again, there's no reason why we can't, I would encourage brother Masons to start thinking about uh, group tours. We're just doing all that again. Um, and, uh, and do book signings or whatever you want. Or, you know, I, I, I'll, I do like to go to lodges and I'd love to go anywhere I can to promote the book, but there is a speed bump on that because uh, I don't want to go to every single lodge because you know it's just not it's not worth my time because i have other things to do it's not that i don't like to but so for me to come and give a talk at a lodge uh it, the the requirement is for the lodge or the masonic organization to purchase or to promise to purchase 
50 copies of the book and then cover my expenses. So that way you have a, a certain amount of money, people who will show up to get the book. It has a, has an audience and, and a, and a, a group that you can sell the book. And if you, if the organization wants to mark up the book or whatever, they can make a little profit. I don't care about that. I don't think anybody cares. I'm happy to do that and support the book and support the Memorial Association, of course, but I don't really want to go to, you know, every small town lodge in Iowa. And I can say that because I'm from Iowa. Um, You know, I don't want to go to Keokuk and Fort Madison at a time when Oskaloosa and Weaver and Burlington, and then go across the river to Macomb and Mount Monmouth and Galesburg and Knoxville and all that other stuff. No. So, but if all the lodges in a district want to get together, that would be awesome or Scottish Rite Valley or something like that. That would be wonderful. Sorry, Ohio. You're not getting you're not getting Mark Tabert this year. Yeah. Provided the Valley um, promises to get through their business quickly. Yeah. Also important. Um, yeah. So, what other questions do you have? Let me see. Oh, yeah. So, Mark, uh, here's a question for you. Um, what was if if you could pick one you know, revelation or piece of insight that you've gotten out of this endeavor, I think what's what would be your favorite bit of insight that you've gleaned on George Washington? Well, I, I think that the, the the real point here is to sh- is shift the narrative, and this is sort of what we've been trying to do at the Memorial Association. So, the the memorial the Memorial Association and the memorial was originally built to by the founders to talk about the virtue and character of Washington. So if we think about Mount Vernon, Mount Vernon is a museum dedicated to Washington, the man, his private life, the family who lived there, the enslaved people, that whole universe that Washington was in, his home. The Washington Monument in the District of Columbia is to Washington, the father of the country, the political figure, the statesman, the memorial is dedicated to Washington's virtue, and that's and and that we should be teaching Freemasons and Americans and everybody those virtues that are necessary to maintain a republic, um, and and to be good citizens and to be good moral human beings and to maintain civilization for that matter. What happened in the 1930s and 40s and 50s is that the fraternity shifted away from and American society in general shifted right. away from character and moved towards personality. And there's a whole lot of history about that, but it was no longer about who you were. It was about who you knew, right? It was more about, it wasn't about the character of the man. It was about the connections you made and who you schmoozed and and where you went to school and who you knew and blah, blah, blah. It was resume building. So everything in the 1950s just turns towards Freemason, George Washington, the Freemason, and, and just saying that over and over and over again. He was a Freemason. He was a Freemason. And then presenting him as the master of his lodge rather than a master mason. He was elevated He was elevated above the craft, above the level, and put on this pedestal that he was a, he was a, a master, a worshipful master, rather than being a master mason, a man who had mastered himself before he tried to master others, right? Amazing thought, So. Right? So he, um, so that became very stale and boring, and it becomes it becomes dead end. So, what we've been working at the Memorial Association, the board of directors, from the board of directors on down for the last fifteen years, is to try and shift that narrative back towards about being character and back about his virtues, and trying to teach people about the extraordinary human being that George Washington was. 
that once you get through, you know, once you get through the simple facts about him entered being entered pastor and raised and these sort of things, you get into his life and his character um, and the extraordinary things that he did. That's more important. So the purpose of this book and the what I was working towards is trying to figure out how to articulate that shift. And then through the process of this book, you see that as the fraternity is maturing and developing as it goes through its colonial period, through its war for independence, and then into the federal period with with a, a U.S. constitution, Freemasonry is developing and it's forming grand lodges and they're writing grand constitutions and they're sending these grand constitutions to Washington. Washington becomes a patron of the fraternity. He becomes a ex- living example of what the fraternity is. And they're using him as a patron in the same way that in England and other places they use royal members of the royal family as patrons of their organizations, of their charities, of their trusts. And that's that's fine. What happens, though, after Washington's death, and more especially in the Antimasonic period, Washington becomes the great defender, becomes the great um, stalwart, the great shield against the anti-Masons, and we revere him in many ways because he was our champion, because the men who survived the anti-Masonic period could hold on to Washington and could claim him as a member. That protected him from the worst kind of attacks uh, that was leveled at Freemasonry as being part of the Illuminati, being anti-religious, being all sorts of horrible thing that the anti-Mason said to him in the same way that um, if you know your history during the, during the, um, during the Red Scare or during the, the um, Joe McCarthy era and the witch hunts and these sort of stuff in the 1950s, there were plenty of communists running around. We know that they infiltrated all sorts of places, but when Joe McCarthy went after, you know, general Marshall, George Marshall, that's when he went too far. It was the session that George Marshall, to, Marshall was not a loyal American. That's when it kind of craps out. So it's sort of things that happened in the Antimasonic period is once once you have George Washington defending the fraternity, you can't really um, go too far, right? Um, and that's, that's part of the reason why we revere him because they were – during that time of crisis in the anti-Masonic period, the Freemasons who were holding on were holding on to George Washington, right? Makes sense. Mm-hmm. Right on. And I do see one more. I think we have time for one more question. One more. Um, it's from Brother Chris. Uh, Brother Mark, can you speak to the aprons, gavels, tools, and other Washington relics? They've become proxies on Washington's Masonic legacy. Sure. So does your book so, have um, many gavels and aprons? Yeah, so there aren't any gavels. Well, there's a gavel that he would use at the Cornerstone Ceremony of the U.S. Capitol that's owned by Potomac Lodge. There, there are – so I go through this in quite detail in the book, um, and I have images of the aprons that are in question. So um, I guess one of the things that is not that's maybe shocking but shouldn't be because it's been kind of well-known for 20 years or more. So the apron that's at the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania that claims to be – uh, Washington's apron is not, so far as we can tell. There's no evidence that it was his apron. There are two aprons that are probably Washington's. One that's at Alexandria Washington Lodge 22, and the other one that's owned by Mount Nebo Lodge in West Virginia and Shepherdstown, West Virginia. One with and those skull. two have some... What's that? The one with the skull. Yeah. Yep. So both of them have strong provenance um, that can directly trace back to France because they're French aprons. The apron that the Grand Lodge of Pennsylvania has is not a French apron. There's nothing about it that's French. But we think it was made in China. A, a Dutch historian has figured this out. It was might have made, been made in China as part of the 
first shipment of, of Chinese goods coming into the United States wow. in the 1780s. In fact, the man who was in charge of that, I, it's in the book, was in response, was, he was a Continental Army officer. He was responsible for securing a lot of things for the Cincinnati from China. So it may have been a, an example of Chinese silk work that came to the United States. And maybe it was supposed to be given to George Washington, but he passed away before he could receive it. But it has, but the story about it being made by Madame Lafayette and this other stuff, that story doesn't show up until the 1860s. What's more, um, th this stuff had been sorted out kind of in the, in the 1990s, but it wasn't really much promoted. What's more, when Lafayette came to town in the 1820s, he came back to the United States and he went to Pennsylvania. If they had an apron that was made by his wife, they would have showed it to him when he was in town. And there's no mention of, Wash of Lafayette seeing an apron made by his wife when he was in town in Philadelphia in 1824, 1825. So it's a, it's a wonderful story. It's a beautiful apron. There's a lot of great stuff behind it. But the two aprons that we can best document are the one that's in Alexander Washington Lodge 22 and, and Mount Nebo Lodge in West Virginia. The one yeah. with the skull. Um, right? Yeah, the skull. So the skull... You know, the skulls relate to, to the death of the master craftsman, right? There's a dagger on it. And those 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 are known motifs used in uh in in continental Freemasonry. Yeah. And then the other items that would be related to the cornerstone ceremony of the US Capitol, the the trowel, the T square, the, the right angle, the gavel. There's an image of them in the book. And then the last sort of big artifact that's not is is obviously the lock of hair that's in the Grand Lodge, Massachusetts, in the gold urn that um, that Paul Revere made for it um, a couple of years after it came in. And I have actually, of course, had the opportunity to hold that um, a couple of times. Here's an image of it. Um, so did I. We saw so it too. Cool. Uh, yeah, hold that up as again. As a Massachusetts, I'm sorry. Mm -hmm. As a Massachusetts Freemason, um, I've had an opportunity to. Um, we are too. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah, that's a, that's a weird relic uh, just for what it is. You know, a gold urn, right, that was what constructed by Paul Revere and, and yeah. has a lock yeah. of George Washington's hair in it. And I mean, if you get enough DNA so, off of that, you can you can rebuild some founding fathers. It's awesome. Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I think there's a Star Trek episode about that. Uh, and then, so. The other side of this, of course, there's a couple of things, which is the letter. So this is important, too. So the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts wrote a letter right after they found out he died. And Martha Washington, the secretary, Tobias Lear, wrote the letter back saying, we're happy to do this. She wants you to have this lock of hair. So, again, if there was any animosity that the widow had towards Freemasonry, she didn't have a problem with that. And the, so the letter is reprinted in the book. So you can read the letter, Ooh, the exchange between nice. the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts and, and Martha Washington. The thing about that gold urn is that, of course, gold was extraordinarily rare in North America before the 1848 gold rush in California. Um, so to make anything out of gold in the United States was an extremely expensive proposition. The other thing, too, which is, is curious, is that uh, President Garfield, when he was assassinated, the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts made a companion uh, urn for, for Garfield as well. There's another gold urn oh, that nice. the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts has for, for Garfield. Yeah, oh, um, I know that. I'm not sure if it has a lock of hair. but uh, 
so hey, I'll, um, I'll, it's an extraordinary piece because it, because yeah. bec- it, this goes back to the goofiness of not the go- but the the un- how wild wild west Freemasonry is. So literally, in the Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, when the new Grand Master is installed, he is handed that urn and he's told to possess it. And then, of course, they take it back and they put it in the vault. But for the first hundred hundred years or so, oh no, no, it it was given to the Grand Master and he held on to it in his private possession, and then he turned it over to the next Grand Master. And I think that happened from eighteen hundred to maybe even nineteen hundred before they decided maybe that was a bad idea. So it was literally a, a relic that was literally passed on from Grand Master to Grand Master for 60 or 70 years. Um, I don't, I haven't really detailed that out completely, but it's pretty clear that it, that's what was the idea behind it. Right. So th- again, then somebody decided, well, maybe, you know, we don't want to do that. So, so um, that's an extraordinary thing too, but there's not many, the rest of the material is mostly the books and the letters that were sent him. Uh, and, the, okay. and, the, and Washington received a lot of sermons too. He received 10 or 12 different sermons um, that were either just sent to him by by pastors who had preached at a Masonic event at a St. John's Day, or Joseph Webb, who was Grand Master of the Ancient Grand Lodge of Massachusetts, sent him several s- sermons with his signature on, on the top, Joseph Webb's signature, that were just of other sermons uh, related to St. John's Day that uh, pastors had preached on. So Washington had, had read a fair amount of of those sermons that were preached by uh, in different places. So awesome. Well, this is, uh, yeah. this is really great. Um, you know, the past hours flown by. And so normally what we do is we, we ask a final question about the topic to draw on each of the hosts individual experiences, but seeing as that you are the residential expert on George Washington, I, I have just one simple final question for you before we wrap up tonight's show. And that question for you is, now, you've emphasized multiple times throughout this episode that it is not so much about George Washington, but it is more about the fraternity and his his virtue and his values. And that's certainly everything that you said um, you're trying to um, commemorate in, in the Masonic Memorial. And so let's fast forward. Let's just say through the, the powers of the DeLorean that George Washington were to be fast forwarded to today. Um, understanding, yes, he was a product of his times and, you know, a lot of the, uh, the revolution shaped his, his life experiences. But how active do you think he would be in Freemasonry today? And like, what would be his, his leanings? What would be his, uh, his focus uh, uh, as far as being involved with the fraternity? Well, so I, I think it's safe to say that Washington was an introvert. He was not a happy-go-lucky guy. He had a very few close friends that he hung out with. He wasn't a type of guy who would schmooze at parties. He felt uncomfortable in crowds. Um, he was he was socially awkward in some ways, um, but he had a commanding presence, and he was quite charismatic. I think that he would be, if he was in Freemasonry, he would find a very a small lodge be comfortable in. I don't think he's the type of guy who would be in f- three or four lodges. I don't think he would be, you know, doing Scottish right, York right, and the whole sh- thing. I, think I was going to ask the appendant body question, which was which right. would be his appendant body. But yeah, you, you kind of hit the nail right. on the head so, there. So I, I think that, you know, Washington, that's why 
that's why um, that's why his relationship with Alexandria Lodge is important, and obviously Fredericksburg because he remained member of both lodges. But the painting here, the painting was a gift to him for, by by him to the lodge. So the lodge wanted a painting of him, and and the guy who did it, William uh, William Williams, wanted a wanted to do it. Washington didn't like portraits. But um, he gave that a, he sat for that portrait as a gift to his friends and neighbors in Alexandria. Wow. So uh, Washington and, and Washington attended Lodge during the when he was um, when he was a colonel on the in the Virginia regiment to be at his best friend's raising as a master mason. So this is part of the other relevation as we think of George Washington. Uh, and we think of Freemasonry is smoozing around on different levels and going to different things because we have automobiles and we have internets and we right. can do all this stuff. Mm -hmm. And we kind of think that George Washington traveled a lodge and why wasn't he been able to do that? He had the wherewithal. When in fact, Freemasonry then and should be today should be an intimate band of brothers tight in your little lodge, doing your own little thing, encourage each other to be better husbands and fathers and sons and, and in your workplace rather than there's nothing wrong with that networking and being hyper no. um, extroverted. Um, but, but that's not really what Freemasonry's purpose is. Freemasonry's purpose is to be very, very small organization with, with people who, who live down the street and around your, your remember in the old days, the Tyler went to Tyler when it was time for a lodge meeting, the Tyler went around town and handed out, you know, the lodge notices, they weren't mailed out. He knew where you lived. You lived in a small town. He went, he ran around the town and, and handed out to you the notice. I've heard people thinking about doing that again as, and I kind of like that idea, you know, and, and that's how intimate the organization was. They didn't put things in the mail. They just came by and said, you know, we'll be meeting next by order of the worship master, you know, right. next Thursday you will show up. Oh, all right. All right. Well, well, that's that's excellent. Thank you for giving us that context. And again, that that's the beauty of the research that you've done. Uh, you know, the the historian aspect that you can take the character and personality and try to you know see what how he would react. And that's that's exactly the answer I was looking for. Um, Good. Because it, it's I aim it's to please. It certainly tells a lot about about his personality. And and I, you've done you've done the great great research in pulling all this Thank together. You. So uh, one last plug for that. I know that. Uh, yeah. You said that McCoy's would be the best way to get in touch with that. Uh, that would yep. give the most benefit to um, the memorial as well as uh, yeah. to the Virginia Press. And if you, you know, the other thing too would just be nice as I noticed on this. If you want to write a review, if you want to put something on Amazon, I, I'm happy to interest. I'm happy to see your questions or respond to that sort of stuff. I'm just curious to see how people like the book too. So that just makes me interested. You know, Excellent. We all want to be liked. Right. So even George, Washington. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, good, Joe. We got you way covered about that one. Oh, good. Thank <laughs> All you. All right. Well, uh, brother Mark, thank you very, very much for coming thank on you. to share your experience and your research. And, um, you know, I guess I wish, I wish you the best in, in, uh, getting this book out there, getting the, you know, the personality and characteristics and virtues of, brother washington out there for the next generation so thank you again for all your hard work thank you right. yeah thank, thank you, you brother my pleasure and for that Great evening. yeah i want to thank you all very much for watching and keep searching for more like have a good night wow